Hey, this is your host Shane with another exciting episode of Radical Rocks. We're going to talk about some Easter egg fossils, Nevada Goldfield. We're going to talk about fossil hunting on the beach, obicular bloodstone, magnetite, and so much more. First thing I found was a geocrystals, quartz with no clouds. Agate was hot and the ground was hard, but the gems were there to be found. See, I've been through the desert, found a rock with no name, felt good to have in my hand. In the desert, you can find lots of rocks, cause radical rocks are everywhere. That's right, Radical Rocks are everywhere, and we are going to tune out the outside world of madness, chaos, and craziness, and enjoy rocks, minerals, gold mining, a little bit of fossils news, um, very educating and hopefully entertaining, guys. Join us with Radical Rocks. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app. Um, we love your support. It helps us get the word out there. We would love to uh, get our subscriber base up. Also, you can see our videos at Radical Rocks on YouTube. Um, you can follow us on all sorts of social media. We've got our biggest audience on the Facebook Radical Rocks group and also MeWe uh, Radical Rocks Lapidary. You should be able to find us there. And... Come on, join join and be a part. Um, reach out to us. We always enjoy your comments. Uh, sometimes people ask us for ideas, and I'll share whatever it is I can. Um, that's it. Let's get into it. We've got a really neat episode today. Let's see. Birthstones, here we are. We're moving into April. Um, so, let's see. January was Garnet. February was Amethyst, uh, March was Aquamarine, and then uh, April is Diamond. I think we talked about that a little bit last week. There might be some other things. I like May is Emerald, so that's coming up next month. That'll be good for Mother's Day. So that's just your birthstone reminder. I noticed that. Now here's a Pretty cool stone. I think it's uh, July's birthstone, if I'm not mistaken. Rubies. Rubies are awesome. Um, if you go to Forbes.com, there is a spectacular ruby. We've probably talked about it a little bit, but it is the fact, according to Beth Bernstein, who contributed to this Forbes.com article here, this is going to most likely be the most valuable ruby. It will hit the auction block at Sotheby's. And she tells us a lot about it. It's a 55.22 carat. This is what is called pigeon blood red. It is strikingly very, very dark, dark red. It says the natural ruby of 55.22 carats setting a new record for Mozambique rubies and rubies in general. Read a report from this gem lab. Now, Fura Gems, it is a uh, 
gemstone mining and marketing company that is headquartered and established in Dubai talked about this gemstone about September of 2022. Now, something about it, when it was raw, it was an astonishing 101 carats and uh, was named the Star of Fura in Portuguese. So it is of ex- uh, superb or outstanding depth of color, size, and to shine the spotlight on this Mozambique is becoming a rich source of high-quality premium rubies. Now, this color is usually associated with Burmese rubies, but some spectacular pigeon blood rubies are coming out of this air area. Rubies are like no other colored gem can match. The ruby lore and geographical origins are seeped in Asia where it has been heralded as the rarest and most precious stone. Texts from China's North Silk Road date back to as early as 200 BC, indicating the significance of rubies as a source of protection, adorning Chinese warrior armament and even being implanted beneath the skin of Burmese warriors. Uh, Also, whether India, Europe, ancient Europe, or medieval Europe, the golden age of Hollywood, all these different heirs have coveted rubies for their hardness and durability, also vitality and wealth. European royalty have collected some of the world's most prized rubies to adorn their jewels from the sunrise rubies sold at Sotheby's for a world record price for a ruby. This is the 30 million This one, however, will probably go over it, is what I am getting. Um, So here we are. You've got Queen Elizabeth II. You've got the Princess Grace of of Monaco. You've got the Duchess of Windsor. You've got Marilyn Dietrich, which is a German actress. Elizabeth Taylor, an American actress, who have awe-inspiring ruby jewels in their collection. And um, they have a lot of these mentioned here with pictures and stuff. Quite uh, stunning. Quite beautiful. Um, Ruby is the rarest and most costly uh, gemstone, according to this article here. I would say of the big, well-known gemstones. There There are gemstones that are more expensive and more rare. But this is a top one. For centuries... Mines in Miramar were the world's primary source for exceptional rubies, especially those with the pigeon blood color. But Mozambique has reshaped collectors' thinking as many beautiful uh, examples of the crimson glow have caused this location to produce and to become the holy grail of colored gemstones, according to this article. Um... This will go on, uh, I don't want to tell you the whole article, you can read it quite a bit. It tells you more about mining in Mozambique. It has a long history going back to about 1960. The early 2000s, mining of rubies gained momentum in Mozambique with the discovery of the Montepuez ruby deposit in the northern part of the country where this crystal was initially found. 
Very, very beautiful. Significant interest in mining companies from international, from the international mining um, folks. Ruby sold at auctions. A current world record is held by the Sunrise Ruby, 25.59 Burmese stone, which auctioned at Sotheby's Geneva uh, in May 2015 for $30.3 million. However, this whopper of a of a gemstone, of a ruby, over 55 carats, will challenge that $30 million figure and possibly go even higher. So we will stay tuned and keep you up to date on that magnificent ruby. Let's talk about some minerals. Magnetite. Magnetite is a very interesting gemstone. Let me take a swig of coffee here. Some fine crystallized magnetite can be found in uh, the city of Turin, which is in Italy. Magnetite is also uh, in beautiful crystal forms found in Mongolia, China. And magnetite, uh, again, other mines in Italy produce some fine crystallized specimens. Now, Magnetite, uh, the mineral magnetite, you can go to minerals.net and find out about it. Its strongest and best quality is being attracted to magnets. Some forms of magnetite from specific locations are in fact themselves magnets, commonly known as lodestone. This magnetic form of magnetite is the only mineral that is a natural or occurs as a natural magnet due to magnetism of lodestone Small iron particles are often found clinging to its surface. Some dealers may even intentionally place magnetic filings on lodestone to demonstrate its magnetism. Magnetite may form a yellow-brown rust coating if washed or kept in a moist area. So I would keep it dry. If the specimen is washed, it should be dried, preventing rusting. Rust can easily be removed by soaking magnetite in an iron-removing solvent such as iron out, according to this article. Um, hematite's known for pseudomorphs over magnetite. Such pseudomorphs are commonly known as martaite and appear very similar to magnetite. However, they differ as they are weakly attracted to magnetic fields and have a reddish-brown streak when you do the streak test. The crystals are cubicular, um, triangle cubes, uh, many different forms of a crystal atlas are there that can be um, formed from this. Uh, I see a total of six different ones that you, you can see. It uh, doesn't always form in crystals. It can be uh, smaller crystals together that uh, will give it a dusty grainy or in veins or as large embedded grains or in uh, massive uh, bits or pieces or crystals. It is a brittle, it is ferromagnetic, meaning that it is strongly attached to magnetic fields. Um, what else do we have on it? You can go to mindat.org, M-I-N-D-A-T, and, whoops, this is the wrong one, look up magnetite. And you will again see those areas where it is quite rare. It's about 5.5 to 6.5 on the hardness scale. It can be grayish black or iron black. Um, it is metallic and submetallic. It's luster. 
It is a very magnetic iron ore along with hematite typically found. There is nano inclusions of magnetite crystals can cause iridescence of rainbow obsidian. Uh, so that's how rainbow obsidian can get its uh, rainbow color. Extremely thin layers of 200 nm octahedral crystals of magnetite give some basalt surfaces an iridescent sheen. So that's an interesting fact that you might not know. Um, let's go down and look at some of the areas. Uh, it's a very square um, as far as atomic structure. Very square, very cubilicar, cubicle. So that explains that it's mostly uh, cubes. You will find this in, let's see, go down and look at the map. Quite a few areas around the world. I see it in Canada. I see it in the United States of America, primarily on the East Coast. Looks like up in Europe, Australia, and uh, up here in Asia. We will scroll through some of the areas of significant deposits for hematite. You've got Australia, Canada, France, Italy, Norway, Portugal, the United Kingdom, United States, quite a few areas, Connecticut, Massachusetts, uh, Rhode Island, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, New York, uh, primarily in those areas. So, magnetite, you should uh, be interested in that. If you're a mineral lover and if you're a rock hound, you should be interested in the fact that it is in rainbow obsidian. It can also be in tiger's eye. It is a pseudomorph of many different minerals and uh, can cause some interesting effects to take place. All right. So, it was Easter last week. Um, I like to call it Resurrection Day. That's me, but kids love eggs, and uh, they love Easter. My kids love a good egg hunt. Katie Hunt at CNN tells us fossilized eggs crack open the mysteries of the past. She has a wonderful article here at CNN.com if you want to look that up. But she talks about these eggs. Eggs, of course, are laid by all different kinds of animals, uh, including dinosaurs, birds, um, reptiles, things of this sort, amphibians, um, uh, also, uh, can't even think what they're called now, but there's something else that lays eggs, maybe I'll think of it later. Anyway, dinosaur body temperature, it says, uh, talks about that, but the eggs, the eggs have these uh, uh, eggs, they would have to either bury them in a warm place or use their body to uh, generate heat. We know that pythons do this by undulating their body, by contracting and, and, and extending and contracting their body. They generate heat that keeps the eggs warm. Um, dinosaurs were apparently more like birds, they feel, that could uh, generate their own heat uh, just from their body functioning and not have to undulate like the reptiles or depend on the warmth of the sand like turtles and crocodiles and things of that sort. So when you think of these dinosaurs, it says uh, you can think about uh, the ancient uh, eggshell fragments that were found in Papua New Guinea that suggested humans have been raising uh, birds and stuff for thousands and thousands of years. And uh, also these uh, 
Cassowaries are another bird that is an ancient bird, one of the world's most dangerous birds because of the dagger-like claw that they have on each foot. So this bird was domesticated, they feel, and they have found a thousand of these Papua New Guinea eggshell fragments that suggest the birds were deliberately hatched, or maybe they were just eating the eggs, who knows, but this is what the conclusions that they have reached. Now, sometimes uh, these ancient people in Africa and such have made a string of uh, eggshells. In Eastern Africa, they have a eggshell beads that were formed from the first social network, they feel. Uh, such beads have found, been found all over uh, Africa, even places where ostriches don't live. So they were used as money. Uh, they could have been used as uh, decorative to uh, display status or just for beauty. We don't know. But uh, all of those things are possibilities. And um, yeah, pretty cool. Understanding extinction. They talk about eggs, um, climate change, and things like that that they contribute to this. But that is one of the things I wanted to share with you for Easter was the dinosaur eggs. All right. You like fossils? You want to go fossil hunting? You can go fossil hunting on this beach and live out your Jurassic Park dreams, according to Daniela Beardsling. And she tells us at themanual.com that uh, we can go collecting these fossils in Canada at the New Brunswick Fossil Beach destinations that she has picked out for us here. You will see that there is the Point Wolf in the Fundy National Park, beautiful surroundings and bluffs where there is a covered bridge that uh, is quite beautiful where you can go rock hunting and uh, find all these beautiful things. The Grand Manum, Island in Bay of Fundy. It's spelled M-A-N-A-N, Grand Manon. And this one, you can dig for all sorts of geodes and gems and such. There's whales, lighthouses, all kinds of fun things. Other places, a tin can beach in San uh, St. John. Precious stones like flint can be found. Um, also opportunities to see wildlife. Cape Enrage of the, Bundafund the Bay of Fundy. You have got Cape Enrage, which is beautiful. Actual fossils in Cape Enrage Lighthouse is located here. You could go zip lining. There's old shipwrecks. Um, it says there's a thing called the Heritage Conservation Act. So if you think you found an actual fossil uh, they won't let you touch it, apparently. Okay, so it tells us to go collecting, but you can't even touch it. Okay. Hmm. Other than that, get uh, backpacks, things like that. You can add gems and crystals and geodes, apparently, but not fossils. Hmm. Okay. Well, it doesn't really sound like fossil fossil hunting, not fossil collecting. Okay, that's the that's the trick. I guess I fell for it. All right, obicular bloodstone jasper. We didn't talk about, or maybe I did talk about this in the uh, kind of the introduction. I love obicular gemstones. Um, they're special. They're beautiful. 
Obicular Bloodstone Jasper is special because it is a cross between Fancy Jasper and Ocean Jasper. Quite appealing with its bright reds, oranges, and greens. This is according to our friends at Rock and Jim. You can go to rockandjim.com. You can subscribe to their email. Uh, Russ Kenyuth tells us all about this obicular bloodstone jasper. Um, he goes into the material finding on uh, online, Facebook, the Slab Depot, or Depot, and on eBay. And you can look for these colors and pieces. Um, try to f find one that doesn't have fractures because they can have fractures. Um, sometimes in slabs, it's a good way to buy it. It's already slabbed up for you, especially if you don't have a big saw. And then um, some people even buy the pre-cut slabs, which you will pay a premium for that. But it says when you're slabbing it, there's no right or wrong way to do it. Um, I would say just look at the orbs and cut accordingly, and then um, you will see if that's a nice slab that can be made into some beautiful jewelry. Look for the patterns and colors that you like, and they even have some orbicular jasper that goes from a green um, background with red and green orbs with lighter colors in them to, to the red background with reddish orbs, a lot less green, a little bit more yellows and things like that with the orbs. Again, uh, since this material can fracture, I like to use, uh, sometimes they talk about shaping the stone with the 80 grit. I like to use 100 grit and take my time and then go down to two, four, and then 600 grit. And then if you want a really nice polish, they recommend using a 14,000 grit wheel to get a mirror finish and then use a product called Zam compound. It's polishing compound or you can use a, a tin oxide or even an iron oxide to uh, as long as it doesn't have as long as it's very good Jasper and there's no uh, porous materials in there. All right Easter came so a lot of people um, they're called CEO Christians. Um, they only come out for, uh, or was it COE? I forget. Uh, they come out for Christmas or Easter. So I guess it's COE. COE Christians. They come, they come to church for Christmas or Easter. And um, because of that, they might be interested in the gemstones of early Christianity. Easter is fairly big here in the U.S. Not as big as Christmas, but uh, fairly big. And the legends of Easter and the early Christian church, we're told about this in the Rock and Jim magazine. And, uh, you know, this is one of the oldest uh, written texts that we have of the Bible that uh, talk about colorful gemstones. The ones they talk about here are bloodstone. Um, according to the article here from Rock and Jim magazine, you know, when... Jesus died on the cross, his blood dripped uh, on the deep jasper, green jasper below his feet. Um, so, you know, I think that's a myth. I've been to Israel, and um, there's no jasper below the skull, skull rock where he was actually crucified. But uh, it makes for a good story and helps people remember their faith 
Also amethyst, beautiful uh, purple, which of course is a color of kingmanship and royalty, uh, which could symbolize Christ as a king. Uh, the book of Acts has uh, told us uh, about amethyst, a symbol of St. Uh, Matthias, who replaced Judas, as reported in the book of Acts. So that's kind of interesting. Also, a lot of gemstones on the Old Testament on the high priest. They had 12 gemstones that stood for one of each of the 12 tribes of uh, Israel. Very significant. Emeralds here are another one associated with royalty. Uh, it has found its way into many myths and legends related to early Christianity the shape of a bowl dislodged from Satan's crown, according to one version. Um, and according to this, also the bowl of Christ uh, had one in it, which of course it didn't, but you know, these are just legends and stuff. A holy grail and legend of King Arthur. There's another one. Um, and then uh, store, another story claims the bowl was used by Joseph of Armithia to catch Christ's blood from the cross. So very much legends. Around 37 to 68 AD, the legend notes that Nero, the eccentric and really mean uh, emperor of Roma, Rome, who actually burnt his own people to blame the Christians, he also loved gladiator games where people were basically, you know, tortured and eaten alive by animals, burnt alive, you know, disemboweled. It was horrific, horrific, um, supposedly, and they killed Christians just for fun, uh, for sport. He was very uh, ruthless. He killed all kinds of people. But uh, he says, it says here that uh, he watched through emerald glasses, which uh, accordingly gave him uh, a special vision to see things that uh, no one else could see. Pearls, also another uh, biblical type of, uh, it's not, a, it, it's considered a gemstone, but it's organic, right? So it's made by by uh, clams and oysters. The parable of the pearl of the great prince told in the Bible book of Matthew tells about a merchant who was looking for fine pearls. He found one of great value and sold everything to purchase it. The story correlates with the importance of obtaining the kingdom of heaven. Pearls are often used this day to illustrate this concept. And you might have heard of the pearly gates and things like that. So there it is our gemstones of uh, Easter or Christianity for today. There's more that we, you could talk about when it comes to um, religious books and gemstones, but that's one that I came across. Now, let's go to the moon. There's uh, some stuff going to happen on the moon at WXII12.com. A former astronaut, a former NASA astronaut, talks about the historical significance of Artemis II mission. So they're going back to the moon. Marie DeBone tells us about this. They've got a video here if you want to watch it. Um, but Elaine Collins, who was the first female um, shuttle commander, talked about the historical mission of going back to the moon. They're going to go walk on the moon. Another uh, female is going to to uh, go land on the moon. Ar Arthemis II will not land or even go into lunar orbit. Rather, they will fly around the moon and head straight back to Earth. 
uh, 10-day mission will prelude a lunar landing a year later in future missions. So they are planning a, a landing, but I guess they're just going to fly around at once. And then the final goal, uh, besides going to the moon, let's see. What's different this time is we're not just going to prove we can do it and bring back rocks and minerals. We're going to stay. There will be follow-up missions. Artemis 4, 5, and 6 will build the research station at the south pole of the moon, according to Collins. So a lot's going on to the moon. Once they do that, Collins says the next mission will be to go to Mars, which she predicts will be 2030. Final goal within our lifetime is to land astronauts on Mars, and so going to the moon is a stepping stone. So I guess... Um, that makes sense if they could go and build up a lot of things, supplies and things like that on the moon. Um, it's the hardest part of getting into space is overcoming our gravity and our atmosphere. <clears throat> and then after that, I mean, they use these huge jet packs, you know, half to, I don't know the number, but when you look at them, they, these huge rockets are on the side and they just fall off as they're going up. And, and once they get into, um, outer space um they're left with whatever fuel they got with them out there but it's very small in comparison usually to what it took to get them up there takes a lot of energy to get into space so very exciting another uh woman is going into space it says uh she has a book out called the story of the first american woman to command command a space mission <clears throat> and they'll be bringing back lots of rocks, so that's good. All right, I've got a gold mining story for you, too, so let's talk about some more minerals here. I've got clemonite. Clemonite is a interesting mineral. If we go to the dakotamatrix.com, we find out a little bit about uh, clemonite here. This is a... Um, it comes in crystals, fiber, fibrous, and microscopic. It is colorless to brownish-yellow. The streak is white. It's only about 2 to 3 on the hardness scale. And it is said uh, to come from an iron monarch mine, Iron Knob, South Australia, in Australia. It is uh, very beautiful. There, According to this, there are only two locations in the world where this yellow fibrish looking crystal formation of clemonite can be found. This uh, clemonite from the Kintour, uh, also open cut Broken Hill, North South Wells in Australia, is uh, a exceptionally rare zinc phosphate. Very few of these have been found. It has uh, numerous white bow tie-like crystal sprays that are very tiny with turquoise in this particular um, picture that I found here at the dakotamatrix.com. Now, if you go to mindat.org, they have some uh, white fibrous crystals from the Iron Monarch uh, open cut here in the... Uh, area of South Australia, and then they have some Clemonite uh, from Iron Monarch, also with a yellow. This is found in the general same area in the Middleback Range, 
And then also is some more here from Australia, which is extremely long fibrous, white colored from the same area. Now, mindat.org also tells us that uh, its hardness is about three. It's named in honor of Alfred William Kleeman. He was a Australian um, uh, petrologist and a reader in the Department of Geology uh, in Australia. He was a mentor of a generation of students, many, many students of mineralogic, uh, mineralogy and such. Um, as we go down and look, we see the symbol KLM, we see the spectrograph, and then we get down to the areas that it is found. It looks like um, we're seeing a deposit in China and then the rest is all in Australia. We scroll down to look at some more of the other areas, Australia, North South Wales, South Australia, Bolivia, and China are the only locations noted here. So this is an extremely rare mineral, um, very collectible. All right, so we've gone through a lot of information. I want to um, continue and tell you about some gold mines. I know last week I left you high and dry. I apologize, but it is what it is. I do the best I can. Uh, we got from the Western Mining History, Goldfield, Nevada. Uh, quite a few details. This is in the United States of America. Um, you can find out about all sorts of gold mines and gold areas if you want to investigate this site. Um, there are about 64 photos of the Goldfield area. This has become, um, I don't think it's very populated anymore. Goldfield was a site of rare uh, pre and post 1900, the, 19, the year 1900, major gold discovery in Nevada. Gold ore was initially very rich and the growth was huge from 1904 to 1908. Um, Goldfield, believe it or not, became Nevada's largest city with over 20,000 people. Virgil Earp was made sheriff here and in 1904, White Earp also called Goldfield his home. Man, I tell you, White Earp was all over the place back in those days. That guy... That guy got around. Goldfield experienced one of the most dramatic rises and crashes of all mining towns in the West. By the 1900s, ore production was already in steep decline. Uh, ore uh, deposits were discovered to be very rich near the surface, but very shallow as well. So these were pocket uh, deposits, as we call them. And uh, in 1910, the population of Goldfield dropped below 5,000. And in 1923, a fire burned pretty much all of the town to the ground. The town really never uh, gained major significance again and became uh, basically a few tents and prospectors. So initially discovered in about 1902, a prospector by the name of Tom Fisherman he brought gold samples to Tonopah. Tonopah is also in Nevada. 
And the word got out. Uh, he decided to investigate the source of some samples from an area called Rabbit Springs. Um, a few young men, Billy Marsh and Henry Steimler, would make a discovery that resulted in the largest gold mining rush in Nevada since the Comstock about uh, 40 years prior to that. Now, when they were traveling, a huge windstorm happened and they discovered the gold on Columbia Mountain. They named their claim the Sandstorm because of these conditions. The Sandstorm came back with values of $97 per ton. Now, you got to remember, gold was about uh, somewhere between $20 and $35 an ounce back then. So at $35 an ounce, that's about three ounces per ton, right? That's a lot of gold. So the equivalent of about $6,000 per ton. That's huge. I mean, if you found those numbers today, it would be, it would, it would blow everyone away. They just, people wouldn't even believe it. The development of the district was slow starting the turn of the centuries. Um, there was all sorts of leased claims and such. Um, the boom didn't come until about 1904. That was when Goldfield became a boom town. Mines were producing rich returns. Thousands of men arrived to camp to work and try their luck. By August, the mines were producing over $10,000 in gold ore every day. A lot of money back in those days. A lot of money. Um, by 1905, they built, uh, the town came up overnight, basically, became a proper city with buildings made of brick and stone. Miners' houses were generally built of wood. Construction occurred 24 hours a day to keep up with the demand. The arrival of the Tonopah and Goldfield Railroad in September further increased the camp's fortune. New discoveries in 1906 intensified the excitement at Goldfield. Um, people were pouring money into commercial buildings that rivaled any in the state. In 1906, a newspaper article stated Goldfield had over 250 incorporated mining companies, and instead of barren desert of four years ago, a hustling, bustling, up-to-date city of 8,000 inhabitants. They have a picture of a three-story building. Looks very proper. Looks like it's made of brick and stone. In 1907, the county seat was moved from Hawthorne to Goldfield. So it even became the county seat. Uh, crazy. Modern city of over 20,000 people peaked in 19, between 1907 and 1908. They had three railroads, five banks, five newspapers, two mining stock exchanges, four schools, and dozens of saloons. In 1907, a report from the United States Geologist Survey described the boomtown and said that it was uh, experiencing a steady, healthy growth, and uh, buildings were going up like crazy, and so on and so forth. So you can check this out if you want. They've got pictures of people um, at the gambling hall here, uh, passed out. Also, uh, all sorts of places to eat. They had all the luxuries of any place uh, you could imagine. Fruits from California, vegetables from Utah, fresh meat from Chicago, any brand of uh, liquor and wine was available. Operas, violins, piano experts were there. Um, amazing. Prospectors were gathering from around the globe. 
Alaska, London, Africa, and so on and so forth. The USGS has a report with another interesting detail. It said on a windy day in July 2005, a fire was started which destroyed several blocks of tents and buildings. And um, it said that... uh, that they did everything they could to prevent a bigger fire. In 1906, there were labor disputes with the Industrial Workers of the World. The Western Federation of Miners were trying to control the labor in the district. Um, Federal troops were brought in to restore order in 1907, so I guess it got pretty crazy. In 1908, many of the district mines had been operated on a leasing system by the Goldfield Consolidated Mining Company, which built a 100-stamp mill northeast of town. Wow. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, Lots of great pictures here. In in, uh, 1910, the boom years were over, and it was in decline. The fall of Goldfield, one of the most dramatic tales of boom and bust in the West, It says uh, it did not decline as fast and spectacularly as nearby Rhyolite, but ultimately its demise was larger in scale and of a huge impact. 1910 kept ore production up, but required less labor. No new discoveries were being made. Mines were getting played out. Um, Even though mines were producing record amounts of ore, the city of Goldfield had declined to 5,000 residents. By 1913... Um, A flood damaged many of the buildings. By 1918, consolidated ceased operations, and uh, all was but dead. In 1923, a fire swept through the city, destroying 53 blocks of uh, Goldfield's most notable commercial buildings were destroyed. And there were some beautiful, beautiful buildings there. In the years following the devastating fire, The mining industry at Goldfield had previous periods of activity that kept the town from dying out completely. However, it will never be what it was. Today, Goldfield still has a few hundred residents and some commercial buildings. The enormous brick building that was the Goldfield Hotel still stands, although it's not open for business. It was built in 1907 for a huge sum at that time of some $400,000. The hotel was one of the largest and most notable ghost buildings in the West. Head frames, mill foundations, and mine dumps are all around this historic mining town. It is a must-see destination for any uh, mining buff or person who loves history. So this is a great story. Um, Trying to see if there's anybody credited with uh, this story. And um, I just don't see it. So go check out the westernmininghistory.com and look at Goldfield, Nevada to check out those pictures and more articles if you are interested in that. With that, I think we are about done, guys. Thank you. Remember, rocks are fun. Takes your mind off of the all the garbage that's going on today. Do something that you enjoy. Um, if you are in an area where you can go uh, take a trip to go do some rock hounding before it gets too hot. We are in the cusp of spring. You might be able to get out to the desert one last time. Be careful, bring water, check the weather, don't get caught in a flood. 
or head to the mountains or the beaches and uh, find some rocks, dig up some fossils, find an area, go get outside and breathe some fresh air. Until next time, remember rock hounds don't die, they petrify.